Father, we, we praise you. Praise you that the tomb's empty. You've risen from the grave and simultaneously you've defeated the, uh, the curse that death held over all of us. You're worthy of praise for that, but then for so much more. So like Jordan said at the beginning, this time's yours. Invade this space. I want to give our hearts to you. Pray that you'd be blessed now by, by the reading and application of your word. I ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. You can grab a seat. Um, I uh, shared before Jordan last week, before Jordan spoke. Um, normally, I love going through large swaths of scripture uh, together as a faith family. And um, I have no intention of stopping doing that, but every once in a while, it's nice to just pause for a little bit and go, there's stuff that God's laid on our heart, and it's not always either timely or uh, prudent to stop in the middle of uh, going through the book of Colossians or book of Acts or whatever, whatever it looks like. And so I just want to take the first couple, uh, first couple of weeks of this new year just to open up some space for... Jordan and I just to go, and I, what, the prompt I gave Jordan was, what have you been journaling about? And I know Jordan joked that, like, I don't, I don't keep a journal, so I'm just going to have to do what's between me and God. But the essence of that is, like, what's the stuff that you've just been really taking to the Lord and, and contending with him for? And what's the stuff that you just find your mind uh, swirling about and, uh, and meditating on? And so Jordan gave us a great exhortation last week uh, of what it means to have faith in Jesus, um, what it means to just go absolutely bankrupt and uh, with the woman last week, quite literally, but then uh, metaphorically, um, just to go, no, God, I am all in, and you're worth putting my faith in. You can be trusted, and we, we saw that this last week. And uh, this week, uh, I just want to take a moment. You can turn to uh, the book of Second Corinthians. Um, and this is something that's been on my mind for... Uh, for a while that God's just been putting before me in my life, and I thought it's been challenging but encouraging to me. And my hope is that it's the same uh, for you. And so um, we sang in that last song, um, my debt is paid, it's paid in full by the precious blood that Jesus spilled. The next line is, now the curse of death has no hold on me. And I think sometimes... Uh, we might sing the words of that song, but struggle with the actuality of that song. Uh, Because, I don't know about you, but I see the effects of sin, both in my life and in our world, all around me, constantly. It seems like there is not a place I can go that is like untouched by the brokenness of this world, and simultaneously, we have this hope that the curse doesn't have a hold on us anymore. We experience the frailty of life and simultaneously the sting of death and brokenness. Um, This is a quick plug. Uh, In February, we're going to get together on Saturday morning and uh, just explore together tools that we can use to engage with scripture. And so this is a story as I was preparing for that, I was like, this is, this is perfect. This is about as 
close of an illustration as I can get. So this is just a, a little sample of that, talking about how we got the different translations of Scripture. But in 1946, there's a group of uh, shepherds in the north part. So if you look at a map, you look at the Dead Sea, the north part of the Dead Sea, there's a community called Qumran. Okay, the Qumran community, and it was a a place where people went and uh, to like study the scriptures and be with God. Um, and uh, so, in 1946, these shepherds are gallivanting about in the desert of Qumran. There's not a real solid story on how we got to what I'm about to tell you. And so uh, scholars and eyewitnesses and people have had tried to work down exactly how we ended up with the treasure that we got. Um, but uh, the story goes that there were shepherds wandering about. And shepherds in this region are often young men, teenage boys, who, I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, Everyone, every guy goes through a, a streak where breaking stuff is just fun, okay? And so you're just picking up rocks and chucking them just for no reason other than let me see what can break here. And so uh, the story goes that these shepherds are, are walking about and they, they're picking up rocks and they're chucking them inside these caves. And then all of a sudden, one of them picks up this rock and he chucks it inside this cave. And, he, and it doesn't do the like... Echo off into the distance, but instead they hear a shatter. So, like curious young men, they go into the cave and begin to explore. And what was unearthed in the Qumran community at the north part of the Dead Sea uh, was what we know now um, as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls have been paramount in uh, Bible translation and uh, ensuring reliability from translation to translation to codex to codex and all these things because they're able to date these things earlier than so many uh, of the other things. And in some of the, uh, in some of the jars, there was just scraps of parchment with partial books on them. Some of the jars, they have entire books, like entire manuscripts. It, it is to date one of the most, in Bible translation, one of the most important discoveries that has ever been made. But here's where that duality comes back into play. Inside of these earthenware vessels, these clay pots, inside of, it took, I mean, the kid can only throw so hard, uh, it took not very much of a throw to shatter this entirely, and for generations upon generations upon generations, there in that cave, in the midst of fragility, in the midst of being vulnerable, sat this treasure that has been of priceless value to us as we learn to engage with Scripture. And so we can sing songs like that. We can sing songs like, uh, now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Um, but the question that I want, want us to answer, that God has been uh, working my heart over on, is does the person and work of Jesus have any effect on my living and my being right now whatsoever? Or is our hope simply for the future by and by 
And so we'll endure the crumminess now because there's a future there out uh, that we can put our hope in. And so I believe that, that Paul, in his letter, uh, is uh, a lot of people think third letter to the church in Corinth that we find in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, begins to give us a little bit of an answer for that. So start with me, chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> and here's what he says, and this is why I say that illustration was on the nose. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So what Paul is finishing up here is getting done talking about his, his human imperfections um, and, and the fact that it's not that he has some great pedigree that makes him a, a, able to, to preach the gospel so eloquently and so faithfully, but it's actually God in the midst of all of his frailty and all of his brokenness and all of his humanity that's the thing that is so impressive. He says we hold this all-surpassing worth uh, of the gospel, the good news that God, through Jesus, has reconciled humanity to himself. We hold this in the midst of the fragility of our everyday lives. Our lives are but a vapor is the frame that the picture of the gospel hangs in. The reminder here is we don't need to be impressive or put together or have be able to produce works of like systematic theology of like, I'm, here's my theology, I'm done, uh, I've got everything going on for me. We don't need to have all of that in order to be bearers of the good news. In fact, I would argue that it is one of the more freeing experiences of our, of our lives to realize that we don't have to have it all together, that we can be undone and be bearers of the good news, be bearers of the mystery, be bearers of the treasure that is the gospel message. Because here's, here's the, the news I have for you, if you haven't realized it up until this point. If you are trying to make sense of your life, if you are trying to just grit your teeth and bear, uh, and bear it through life, if you're trying to uh, hold up against the weight and the pressure and the brokenness of life, uh, let, me just, uh, let me break the illusion for you because you will not be able to. You are incapable And sure, you might be able to get through one hardship or another, but at the end of the day, it's going to wear you down and you're going to just be empty. As I look back at this past year, which I think is one of the reasons that God has stirred my affections towards the scripture to encourage us with, I just think about the weight of my life and the things that Amanda and I have walked through and the things we've had to bear, and it has been un bearable at instances. It's been hard. And, and for, for my testimony of hard in this room, I could probably point around and, and, and people could share just as many other testimonies of hardship, of things that are difficult that we are walking through, both collectively as a church family and as individuals, as we all bring our stories to the table, things are just hard. 
But the gift of that hard is, as Paul says, it reminds us we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that it's this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That, that we don't have to be the, the, uh, the originators of the good news. We just get to be the vessels and the bearers of the good news. Because if the good news needs to originate with me, we are done for. But it doesn't. I'm a vessel. I'm a jar. I, I just get to bring the good news to the table. <clears throat> and that's a gift because it reminds us that in our weakness, in our frailty, in our fragility, in our brokenness, that uh, that's exactly what God needs. We just have to look back to God for the all-surpassing power. It doesn't have to start <clears throat> with us. There's some scriptures, I told you guys several times, there's several songs that Amanda and I just abuse to no end and we just listen to on repeat over and over and over again. And if you uh, sample my mental thoughts for the past six months, I'm sorry, because that's a scary space to be. Uh, But if you sample my mental thoughts for the past six months, I would would probably wager a guess that... uh, These next two verses, verses 8 and 9, are the things uh, that I have repeated to myself more than any other scripture. Here's what it says. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Here's the hope that we have. The suffering of Jesus that is displayed for us in the gospel allows us to have these victorious lives where we have the ability to bend but not break under the weight of life. That we can be hard-pressed, but life, because of the work of Jesus, never gets too heavy for us to be crushed. We can be confused and perplexed and not understand the inner workings of the world around us and go, I don't know why life is the way things, uh, is the way it is, uh, but not in despair. We go, I don't understand why it's this way, but I have hope on the other side of this way. We can be persecuted. People can come after us, but God has promised that he will never uh, forsake us or abandon us. We can be struck down and put off to the side, but we will never be destroyed. We can have and live these victorious lives over whatever may come in our life. When we orient ourselves properly to the author of those lives, and the Savior of the world. Again, remember in verse 7, it's, it's not pointing back to how strong we are. Uh, there's, uh, I've seen a lot of people go through a lot of situations, and one of the resounding things is they've just got, they've got that grit in them. They've got that, uh, they've got that drive in them. They've got that uh, determination in them. And again, sure, but that's only going to get you so far. Do you know what doesn't mean a hill of beans in a hospital room, grit. Do you know, like, determination? At the end of the day, what's that going to get you? You have to have hope outside of these circumstances. And it's God's power shining through us, remembering that it is uh, his all-surpassing power, all-surpassing worth, all-surpassing beauty that's shining through these really fragile and uh, vulnerable and uh, propensity to break vessels that is our 
lives. But how can we live this way? How can we live in such a way that we are able to be pressed but not crushed, that we're able to be perplexed, confused, but not in despair, that we're able to be persecuted but never abandoned, that we're able to be struck down but not destroyed? How can we live this way? And in verse uh, 10 through 12, here's the hope for us. In a life of faith, in a life of faith, we will experience death. Full stop. In a life of faith, we will experience death and the effects of death in our lives. But the hope of Jesus is that because of Jesus, resurrection is always, always, always on the other side of death. It might be resurrection uh, here and now, where you see broken and dead things come back to life. It might be resurrection in eternity. But there is hope for us that in a life of following Jesus, there is always resurrection on the other side of death. Read with me, verses, uh, starting in verse 10. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us. It is. But here's the hope. But life is at work in you too. So he says here that the suffering that we experience in our lives, the hardship, the death, the pain, the evil, the stuff we experience, uh, allows us to participate in the suffering of Jesus. He says we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. And this is just a fancy way of saying that we are all mortal. We're all mortal, uh, and we're all going to uh, experience and endure these hardships. Not a single one of us is going to be able to escape the inevitability in one way or another. It's kind of like death and taxes. Everyone's, uh, everyone's on board for them. Every single person who has ever lived and every single, uh, single person that will ever live has to make terms with the fact that there is hardship and brokenness and evil in the world. But the defining question for us is not how we will respond to, to that brokenness and that evil and that suffering. The defining question for us is how does God respond to those things? Tim Keller, passed away this past year, has been uh, one of those constant companions. And um, uh, he was, I mean, he's, he's well-known in Christian community and outside of that for a lot of reasons. Uh, but he planted and pastored a church for years and years and years in the heart of New York City. And uh, the Sunday after, um, I read his biography this past year, and the, the Sunday after the 9-11 attacks uh, in New York City, they're gathering for their worship service, and people are just trying to make sense of, uh, of the suffering and the evil and, and the hardship that they were enduring. And I love he has made it a point over his entire career and his entire life pointed to this one thing, that uh, uh, Christians are unique in their perspective to pain and suffering and hardship um, because... Uh, here, here's why. A lot of times people go, where is God in the midst of this? Where is God in the midst? And, and Keller points back to often the reality that God 
entered into the suffering of the world. God entered into, through the person of Jesus, entered into the human experience. He didn't stay distant. He didn't, he didn't spin the cosmos into orbit and then just wash his hands of it and go, now figure it out. But no, he, he, he did spin the cosmos into existence and then he watches over and he's present with us. And then when things went off the rails and people were unfaithful to their covenant with God and the brokenness entered the world, world and death entered the world through disobedience and through sin, God came near. God came near. God entered into the hardship. God entered into the death, taking it on his very, his, himself. Like he took it on. He took on the sin and death and the shame and the suffering of the world on the cross so that the sin and the death and the shame and the suffering of the world won't be final. Because in the way of Jesus, there is always resurrection on the other side of death. He's walked the hard road that we walk, but he triumphed over it so that we don't have to remember in verse 7, we get to hold this treasure in the midst of our frailty. And Jesus promised, he says, I am near to the broken. I am near to the hurting. I am near to the mourning. <clears throat> and so it's when we feel particularly mortal, hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, that we get to experience the fullness that life has to offer. <clears throat> because at no point, at no point did Jesus say or promise that a life of following him would be sunshine and roses. There's beauty in it to be sure. I will never lie to you about that. It's beautiful, but it's hard. It's hard because of sin and death. It's hard because of disobedience. But because of Jesus, the sin, the death, all of that stuff, it's never final. There's always resurrection. There's always new life on the other side. So for Jesus' followers, death is just a doorway. Death is just an invitation to resurrection life. And it can be a literal new life that we experience. I think of Jesus calling his disciples, and so many of them were fishermen, and they said, put to death. That Jesus says, like, come follow me. Maybe, like, put to death that whole other way of life. Uh, put to death the way that you know to make a living for yourself. Put to death the way that you know to provide for your family. Put to death the entire way of life and come be an itinerant preacher with me. Like, come follow me around, or we're going to see God's kingdom brought to earth. And so they experienced a death, but boy, oh boy, did those guys experience the fullness of a life that Jesus has to offer. I think of uh, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus that was offered new life. Like, Jesus, what do I have to do to experience this life that you're talking about? And Jesus says, you gotta, you got to die to yourself. You have to. You gotta leave that whole way of life behind you. Go sell all your possessions. Give to the poor. Then come follow me. What that rich young ruler didn't realize was in the way of following Jesus, it might be sorrow, it might be hardship in, in the way of death, in the way of evil, in the way of suffering, but there's always resurrection on the other side. Because of the work of Jesus, 
death does not have the final say. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? Jump down with me to verse 16. Paul exhorting the church, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Paul says, in light of all of that, in light of who Jesus is, in light of the work of the cross, in light of all of that, therefore, do not lose heart. The Greek uh, talks about uh, losing heart being like this idea of utterly spiritless or to be wearied out or exhausted. So what Paul's saying here is do not, do not fail from exhaustion. Like don't give up because it feels like we're seeing the world wreak havoc on our lives. Outwardly, we are wasting away. But don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. If you take any form of counseling whatsoever, this seems like terrible advice. When's the last time you're having a hard day or you're struggling with someone and uh, let's say you're, like, you're really worked up and you're anxious about something and then someone comes up to you and goes, hey, just like don't be anxious about that. <laughs> it's revolutionary advice. I wish I would have thought of that, is probably your response. No, that's terrible advice. Just like stop doing that thing that you're really struggling with doing. Easy for you to say. But it doesn't stop there. Again, though our outward bodies are wasting away, inwardly, where it matters, our souls are being renewed day by day. So Paul acknowledges here, as we've talked about all along, Paul acknowledges that we are finite creatures. We have certain and particular capacities on our life because we are not God. Our lives are finite. Our resources are finite. Our limits are finite. Our energy is finite. Our abilities are finite. Our emotions are finite. We live in a finite world. But that's all wasting away. So don't lose heart because the outside stuff, it's all wasting away, but the inside stuff is being renewed day by day. Like before scripture says, God's mercy is new every morning. Every day we wake up and God is enough for us that day. And then we get to the end of the day and we're wearied out and we go to bed and we wake up and guess what? God's mercy and his goodness and his love and his presence are enough for us that next day. And then we get wearied out and guess what? And we wake up the next day and, and God is enough for us that next day. And time and time again, he is enough for us. Because inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. So outwardly, we feel like we're falling apart. But inwardly, God is sustaining our souls and our beings because he's enough for us. And then he says this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
So like I've said, I've said it a thousand times, there's no way getting around uh, uh, the hardships and the suffering that we experience in my life. But what I'm uh, confident of this is there is a relationship to the glory of God that is both infinite in quality and duration that is found in our relationships with Jesus. Let me say that one more time. There is uh, a relationship to the glory of God in our lives that is both infinite in quality and duration that's found when we position ourselves rightly to Jesus. I remember, uh, for some reason, Miles has been going through this stage. Uh, it started maybe a week ago, um, where he went to Amanda one, one night at uh, bed, just bawling. He's bawling. He's four years old. And she, uh, Miles, what's wrong? Amanda's so tender and caring, compassionate. And he just goes, I just want to be a baby again. <laughs> I go, okay, so do, what do we do? We, the kid barely fits in. He's all balled up, but we pulled out the pack and play for him because he wanted to sleep in the pack and play. And uh, I, again, I don't know what perpetuated this, but it got me thinking uh, because Miles is at an age, he's four, uh, four and a half. He can't lift the pack and play off the ground. And I remember very specifically, I don't know why this thing, maybe because I had a younger sister and so it was like around, but I remember at like the four, five, six-year-old mark, uh, my parents had this blue pack and play. And I haven't lifted it as an adult. No, I have, because my sons have, have slept in it. Uh, but I remember when I was a kid, this pack and play was by far, by far the heaviest thing I could ever imagine. Like I remember trying to like lift it up and lug it around, and this, this baby blue pack and play was the heaviest thing that I could ever imagine. Uh, now, was it the heaviest thing on the face of the planet? No, it wasn't. Was it to me in that moment as a four, five, six-year-old? Yes, it was. And this is what I'm trying to encourage us with today. I don't, I don't want to minimize the, the suffering and the hardship and the weight because there's things that we walk through in life that stink, and I don't wish it on any of you, and it's not a part of the way of Jesus. Death, sin, and suffering is not God's intention for us. But we live in a broken world that God is redeeming, and so it happens. It happens. But there is an inverse relationship between our suffering that we experience and the glory, meaning the majesty and the goodness and the graciousness and the presence of God. If I could uh, use measuring cups as an example. What Paul's getting at here is one cup, one cup of suffering. It doesn't mean it doesn't stink. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt in the midst of it. And maybe even for the rest of your life, you'll feel the effects of it. But one cup of suffering pales in comparison to an ocean's worth of glory that is spent with God forever. How is this possible for us? How is it possible to have this attitude and this demeanor and this mindset and this like, way within our spirit? How is this possible? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, 
but what's unseen is eternal. How do we do it? We fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus daily and moment by moment and hour by hour and minute by minute and second by second. And I know that that a lot of you are probably like, I don't have time in my daily rhythms in my daily life to do that moment by moment. And I just want to implore you that you don't have time not to. To daily wake up and systematically seek the face of God. Seek the person of Jesus and say, Jesus, this world's a mess and I need your presence in my life. Jesus, I can't possibly, I can't bear the weight of today. I feel so fragile. I feel like a jar of clay. But for some reason, you've chosen to put the mystery and the treasure and the good news that you are reconciling all people and all things unto yourself. And so I need you. I need you to be present in my life today. And guess what? He, he will. He will be. You know, you can take that promise to the bank. He will be present. But we are systematically going, God, I need you. I need you every hour. I need you every minute. I need you every second of every single day. I need you. I need you. I need you. Fixing our gaze on Jesus. After we finish up these next several weeks, we're hopping into a long study of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one of the things I do before we get to whatever point in time is I'd just love to read several people's uh, takes on uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I finished a book this last week uh, by a Scottish guy, Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, he was talking about uh, Jesus' promise, um, uh, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And, and he, he says this, being pure in heart means letting nothing stand in the way of our vision of Christ. He is a great Savior and Lord, but great things can be completely obscured by small things if the small things are brought near to our eyes. The issue, therefore, is not how important something is in itself, but how closely we fix our gaze on it. 20-ounce coffee cup, 80 or 100 people. I don't know, I can count you. I can see all of you right now. But when I choose to take the small thing and, and put it in front of my eyes, guess what? Half of you guys, you could, you could sneak out right now. I would have no clue. Just checking, boys, just checking. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. So let us this week fix our eyes on Jesus because, uh, because of the cross of Jesus and the resurrection, what it ensured at, and the reason we fixed our eyes on Jesus is that whatever presses you will not crush you. Whatever perplexes you or confuses you will not have you lead to despair. Whatever causes your persecution will never leave to your abandonment. Whatever strikes you down will not destroy you because Jesus is enough. So, to, to close our time today, I want us to spend some time meditating on that. And there's a familiar song by one of Amanda and I's uh, college favorites. His name's Josh Garrels. Um, 
And uh, I want us just to spend some time meditating, both on, on the lyrics. It's a, like I said, it's probably going to be a familiar song to most of you. And, and then maybe open up your, your Bible and, and uh, meditate on the scripture we read today, starting in verse 7 all the way through verse 18, and meditate on what, what's the invitation you're receiving in this moment to, to fix your eyes on Jesus, to, to, to turn to him, to, to absolutely adore him, and take all the little stuff that you've been putting right in front of your eyes so that you you can't see anything, and instead take, scrape all of that away so we can see Jesus because he's enough for us. Let me pray. We'll meditate on this together. We'll be done. Father, thank you so much for the reality that the, the momentary stuff that we experience, the hardship that we experience, it pales in comparison to forever and always with you. Speak to our hearts now by the power of your spirit. We're opening ourselves up to to invitations from you, from what it might look like to, to fix our eyes just solely on you, God. Speak to us now. We'll be transformed by it. I ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Once again, the words of Paul. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not what on, on what is seen, but, what on, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Go today in this hope and go today grace of Jesus, the love of the Father, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit.